You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thank you, Matt, and all that team for leading us in worship to traips boldly to the throne of God's grace with confidence and yet not have the view obscured. I appreciate that. We are delighted that you're here. Welcome to church, what we believe is the new covenant community of the Spirit. Those people who are themselves indwelled by God's Holy Spirit coming together for the purpose of singing together, of worshiping together, of hearing God speak in the present tense through His Word. This is what we want to be about. So I want to Introduce myself. I'm Eric Barton, and I get to be the downtown campus pastor. And we want to make sure that you uh, feel warm and in, invited and engaged and connected because we fervently, foundationally believe that the local church is God's plan for your life. And so, if this is to be that church, we want to help you get grafted in. You can do that a few ways. You can look at the visitor card in the seat back pocket in front of you, fill that out with your contact information. We'll follow up with you figure out how to get you connected. We have a team of volunteers that love to reach out and say, hey, uh, where would you like to be connected in? Or you can pull out your phone, flip it open, and text to this number, 903-202-0974, and just let us know that you're here. And if you are interested in serving or being a part of any one of our ministries or serving in a capacity of leadership, we want to know that you are here. Now, as the church body, there are a few things that are going on in the life of our church that we always want to do worshipfully because our God is good and he is worth our effort. So first and foremost, we began a business meeting this morning simultaneously on our South Campus and our downtown campus. White House followed along a little bit later on. And this is for our, our congregational voting to affirm the candidates for elder and deacon at all three campuses. On this campus, we have Dan George, who has been nominated, interviewed, screened, and approved by the elders. And uh, for Deacon, we have James Van Dyke and Dash Connell, also have been interviewed, screened, and approved by the elders. So we get the opportunity to congregationally vote to affirm those men as well. You might notice on the ballot that uh, the candidates from the other campuses are also present. That's right, one church, three locations. You can vote for those candidates as well. And you may say, I don't know them. Uh, I don't know anything about them. Right, then you can do a couple things. You can either say, I don't know them and I'm not going to vote. Or you can say, I trust that the elders did due diligence and they affirm them and I agree with that and I vote for all of them. Or if it's one in particular that you've got a huge problem with, that's fine. You're probably going to want to let me know about that. It's not too late. But you do need to be a member of the church to vote. So I encourage you, not in the middle of this service, please, but uh, when it's over, you can vote right out there in the foyer. Uh, the business meeting will be uh, completed, formally concluded, 15 minutes after uh, whoever preaches the longest. My money's on south, just between you and me. Now... Uh, this is a part of what we do as the church. We gather together and we want to be very purposeful in all of the things that we do and all of the things that we say. The, the music that we sing informs our theology. Our theology informs our music. This morning, I want us to continue. And when we go to God's word, I want us to do that deliberately, worshipfully. 
declaring that God is worth it. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and for who you have declared us to be. I pray, God, that you will speak by your Holy Spirit, through your word, because of the finished work of Jesus to these, your people. May we be satisfied with nothing less. We pray this, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder, what if I told you? What if I told you that you, that you could bring pleasure and honor and glory and joy to God? You, one solitary, single, isolated individual that you could actually impact and influence God's delight. What if I told you that? Now, don't be so quick to answer because I really want us to pause and to think honestly, to think critically, to think penetratingly and transparently about that. Do I sincerely care about how God feels? Your knee-jerk reaction is probably somewhere along the lines of, well, yeah, I guess, sure, uh-huh, sure, yeah. But do I really care about how God feels? Because the reality is, most of us, our days are comprised by a lot of other stuff. Of course we care, I mean, of course we care, because we know that we're supposed to care, but we're really busy, and we have a lot of projects going on. I'm reminded of one of my heroes of the faith from 1,600 years ago or so, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was born in North Africa, uh, raised in the church, and then by the time he uh, becomes a young teen, he realizes this is not for me. I don't care about God's pleasure. I care exclusively for mine. And so he sort of leaves the church, and he practices a long period of venal immorality and carnality. He's just, he's a drunk, he's uh, He's just into all sorts of inappropriate um, activities. And yet, all the while, somehow he knows that this life is not going to work. It's not going to turn out good. It has an expiration date. And so he would pray, Lord, give me purity and give me chastity. Just not yet. He would write about that later on in his famous book, Confessions, in book, seven, cha- book 8, chapter 7. He was making fun of his fleshly, foolish, adolescent self that would think that way. And yet I go, whoa, Augustine was making fun of that. And yet, wow, I can actually relate to that struggle. Lord, I, I want to do all those things. I know that I should. I know that it's good for me. But eh, maybe just later. I want it on my terms when I want it. There's still some of my own pleasure that I want to pursue. Well, if we're transparent, probably all of us can relate to that. Sometimes our spiritual lives are consisting of this. Yeah, but really. Like, I agree with what you're saying there, but I mean, come on. I got bills to pay. I got Instagrams to shoot. I got all kinds of selfies that are on schedule for the next five. I got things to do. I'm a big deal. I'm really important. And people care about what I look like. I get it. I know how you are. Or our spiritual lives are often, yeah, I get it. Uh, That's important one day, but not yet. I'll know when the time is right. I will know when the time is right. Well, here's what I'm hoping this morning. We're going to tackle a pretty tough text this morning, and my hope is that by the time we walk out this morning, we will all be in complete agreement with our big idea, and it goes like this. 
it's time. Let me just say with as much authority, candor, and clarity, it's time. Wherever you think you might be or have come from, the trajectory that brought you into this place this morning, we believe that God and His sovereignty has positioned and purposed every single one of us to be in this room this morning and that we are here to hear God say, it's time. So I'm going to ask you to open with me in your Bibles. I hope you brought your Bible, either a hard copy or some sort of digital device. If not, we will continue to train you to not do so by placing it on the screens. But I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Nope, that's not a joke. We're going to look in the book of Haggai. If you're not super familiar with Haggai, just go and find Matthew and then turn left about three books. Both Matthew and then Malachi and then Zechariah and then Haggai. Right dead center. Why, oh why, are we in the book of Haggai? Well, because now as always, we must always bring ancient truth to current challenge. We must always bring current truth or ancient truth to current challenges. The book of Haggai speaks, I believe, directly and pointedly to where we are. So I'm going to read the book of Haggai chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 to 11, and we'll see if we can unpack it and explain and understand what's going on here. So Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord." You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast." And on all their labors. This is God's word as it came to Haggai. Now I get it. The book of Haggai, not really the place where a lot of us spend a whole lot of time devotionally. Haggai gets to be the guy who's between the Z's. Like, you know, there's Zephaniah and there's Zechariah, and then Haggai's like, hey, I'm Haggai. Like, you don't have any friends, Haggai. We know this. That's pretty much what we know about Haggai. He's one of the 12 minor prophets, but he's only a minor prophet because of the amount of his message that was recorded. What he says is every bit as important as what Ezekiel or Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah record, but he's one of the 12, and he writes very late in the Old Testament. 
First of all, what's interesting about Haggai in chapter 1, verse 1, is that we don't know anything about him. That's very unusual for a prophet of God to show up in front of the people of God and to have no idea anything about him. He's not described as being from anywhere or related to anyone. We don't know his tribe. We don't know his father. We don't know his hometown. We don't know his age. We don't know how long he ministered and spoke. We don't know uh, when he died. He just shows up. And by the way, that's often the way that God works through preachers even today. When God is ready to speak to a group of people, he generally raises up somebody and he does so with power. And the Spirit does what the Spirit does. And so, yes, we as preachers, we always want to be diligent. We always want to be sacrificial in our study, our preparation, and our prayer. Always. And yet, no amount of my efforts as a communicator, as a student, as a theologian, and whatever, has ever transformed a single human soul. Ever. That's always God's business. Sometimes God sees fit to use the very worst sermons I have ever preached, and people are amazingly impacted. Sometimes I feel like I've hit it out of the park. Okay, when I say sometimes, I mean once. There was this one time, and uh, it was a yawn fest, apparently. God does what God does by his spirit. It reminds me, uh, in the, about 200 years ago, there was a famous Welsh Presbyterian preacher named David Morgan, except he wasn't really that famous for very long. He was a small-town Presbyterian pastor in Wales, and he had a small church, and he did pretty much every weekend the same. But one Sunday morning, something happened. He walked in and just started preaching. And who knows why? The Lord knows why. People woke up, and people came to faith, and that little town began to be transformed, and he preached more boldly, more profoundly, more impactfully, and the whole region experienced revival. And they began to say, David Morgan, on that Saturday night, went to bed a lamb, but when he awoke, he was a lion. And he was instrumental, impactful, at bringing about a, a revival for that entire population of Wales and even into Scotland. And then at a certain point, God said, okay, I think we're done here. And David Morgan's ministry returned as it had always been to that little church, and he preached as he always had. And someone remarked, on that Sunday night, David Morgan went to bed a lion, and when he awoke, he was a lamb. And sometimes that's how it is. And so I, I feel like that's probably a little bit of what happens to Haggai. We don't know a whole lot about him, but suddenly the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. He walks in. He begins to teach. He begins to speak, and everyone's attention is his. And we don't know much about him, but what we do know is the very precise, specific timing. We're told that it's the second year of King Darius I of Persia. That would be in modern Iran. It's an interesting way to give a date. It's not the way an, a prophet of Israel will typically give a date because it's the date of the Persian king, not the date of Ahaz or David or Solomon. Well, why is that? It's because Israel has no king. And so the only thing they can do is say it's the second year of Darius the first, sixth month, first day. Which means we know that precisely and exactly this was August 29th, 520 BC. August 29th, 520 BC, a very specific date. So, so why? Why does this matter and why is it so specific? Well, 
There's a lot going on that we really need to understand if we're going to appreciate the message of Haggai. This is 520 BC, but you might remember that about 500 years earlier, there is one king in Israel and his name is David. He's a good king. He's like a man after God's own heart. He's a shepherd king. He's a warrior. He's a poet. And yet, he fell repeatedly. And he has a son named Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived. The greatest king expands the borders and the riches of Israel. Incredible, except the dude has a thousand wives. That was a tactical error to say the least. And they turned his heart. And so after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split in half. Ten tribes stay in the north. That's Israel. By 722 BC, Assyria has come down and utterly devastated the northern tribes, carries off the remnant and the remainder. They're gone. By 605 BC, the Babylonians have come in. They destroyed the Assyrians, and now the Babylonians have come, and they attack and besiege the southern two kingdoms. And they begin the first of three exiles against Israel, and boys are carted off back to Babylon. Among them are uh, Daniel and his friends. Three separate waves of exile. Because Israel's failure to keep the covenant that God established with them in Deuteronomy. And so 70 years goes by. While they're in captivity, a man named Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, you may go back to Israel. Why, why, why? Because in the book of Isaiah, some 250 years prior, Isaiah prophesied, there will rise a foreign king named Cyrus, and he will send us home. And the people in Isaiah, they said, home? We're here now. And Isaiah goes, yeah, about that. It's not going to go so well for us. We are a stiff-necked people. And sure enough, they go into captivity. The Babylonian Empire rises. It falls. The Persians take them over. There's a man named Nehemiah. He is cupbearer to the king. And he hears word that the temple is in ruins in, in Jerusalem and that the wall is down. And he weeps and he moans. And his king sees him and says, why are you downcast? He says, how can I be happy when my capital is in ruin? So the king says, you may go back. And he sends Nehemiah back with Ezra. And they begin the rebuilding process. But then... Nehemiah has to go back to Persia, and he leaves a couple guys in charge. There's a guy named Zerubbabel. He is the governor. And there's a guy named Joshua. He is the high priest. All of this happens, we know, August 29th, 520 B.C. We also know that they had begun reconstruction on the city, but by August 29th, 520 B.C., Nothing was happening. It had only been a little less than 20 years since they first returned, and the temple sat in ruin. We know that August 29th, 520 BC, was a festival new moon. So they were having one of their seven feasts. So all of Israel that could come was there. All of Israel that can be there is there. And into that context, while all of Israel is gathered making merry, Haggai steps up. Let's see what Haggai says in verse 2. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is, thus says Yahweh of the armies. That's about as serious as it gets. That's when you really want to sit up and pay attention. This is what Yahweh of the armies says. This is not, this is what 7.2 pound little pink baby Jesus thinks. No, 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 no. This is Yahweh of the armies. Now Haggai in his two chapters will use that term 14 times. It's a big deal. This is what Yahweh of the army says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's really what this is all about. The reverence and the care and concern for God and for His glory, His honor, His pleasure, His renown. They really just don't care all that much. Something else 
is more important to them. If you would have asked them, hey, what's more important, the renown and the fame and the glory of God or your comfort? They would say, well, of course God's glory is more important. And God would say, right, that's kind of weird because the place of worship, the centrality of the gathering to, to make a big deal about who I am has been laying in utter disrepair for a long, long time. See, I think Haggai probably interrupted a great party. See, the king was always supposed to resemble and reflect God to the people. And the high priest was supposed to represent the people to God. But when neither of those offices were functioning sufficiently to get God's word across, then God would send in a prophet. And he steps up and he interrupts and he says, Hey, I understand. You have already gotten too busy. Now, I don't know if people were actually walking around saying out loud, gosh, now is not the time to rebuild God's temple. I don't know if they were actually saying that to one another, but they were certainly saying it in their hearts. And what's interesting is the murmur and the mumble of their heart is the same volume in heaven as the shouting in the streets as far as God is concerned. God knows our thinking. God knows our motives. God knows our hearts. God said, these people are saying probably silently. It's not yet time because we've got other projects. We're vastly more concerned for our own pleasure than for God's. Well, verse three and four, we get it all sort of explained to us what's going on. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ooh, that's, that's, the, quack, that's the question. God gets him on this. He intentionally uses a very specific technical word. Is it time for you to live in paneled houses? That word panel is safan in Hebrew, and it means something very specific. Apparently, how we manage our time, how we steward our time matters immensely and intensely to God. How we manage our time is, in fact, an expression of worship. And God says, hmm, you've been managing your time with safan, with paneling. It's an item that is used to line the interior of your home to make it more luxurious, more leisurely, more comfortable, and more opulent. And it's not easy to do, but that's apparently what you care about. Now, this is very convicting because we know that less than 20 years earlier from the book of Ezra, chapter three, verse seven, you can look it up on your own, that King Cyrus gave them a grant to go and get all of this wood from Lebanon and the Sidonians and all the surrounding areas to make this very rich, opulent paneling for the temple. 20 years ago, the foreign king gave them all of this cash to go and get all this wood to make all this paneling for the temple. Haggai shows up and goes, hey, you know all that paneling you guys got and made? It's weird. It sure looks like it's in your houses and not in his. Ugh. And I imagine you could hear the crickets chirp and the tumbleweeds rolling down the street. Awkward silence. Oh, so that's what you care about. They never got around to doing it. And somehow all that paneling went in all of their houses. And so God's question is very convicting. So you don't have time and energy for me, but you do for your own leisure and luxury, right? And I'm just telling you, like all this week, as I've been reading that verse, I would like start to get choked out because I could feel the weight of my Captain Depravity cape hanging on my neck. Did y'all know that was my superhero name? Captain Depravity! And my cape gets really, really heavy. Like, that's me. So, so you got time for yourself to do what you want to do to make you feel good, but you don't have time 
for me. And I go, well, see, the thing, the thing about that is, he goes, hey, <clears throat> hashtag paneling. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's sort of hard to, hmm, kind of hard to defense when I look around at my life and see that it's all arrayed and architected for me. Hmm. Well, verse 5 is really fascinating. He says, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of armies, consider your ways. Rough translation. It is set your hearts on your roads. Literally, think about why you do what you do. It's not just what you do. And it's an identical verse to verse 7. They're almost identical. It's, it's a rhythm and a rhetoric that God is doing. Set your hearts on your ways. Why are you doing what you are doing? Oh, I'll tell you why. It's because you love you more than me, is what God is saying. I want you to think about not just what you're doing, what you haven't done, but the why, the how come. Now, verse 6. You have sown much. He's going to start a five-point progression, what I like to call the futile five. <laughs> he's going to describe five things, five aspects of life that every single one of us does just about every single day of our lives, even though it's 2,500 years later. Listen to this. Number one in verse six. You have sown much and harvested little. In other words, you have done a great job of investing wisely. You have taken your, your, your bounty from the previous season and you've given it back to the land. And the way it's supposed to work agriculturally, mathematically, is that good seed is going to produce even more bounty for the next season. You've done right, except it's not working, is it? Something is wrong in the creation. Your harvesting is not commensurate with your planting. It's not going well. You've invested thinking that that's all you need to do, as if the investment was that which actually produced the bounty. It's not, says the God of the universe. He says, you have sown much and have harvested little. Oh, you eat, but you never have enough. You're never satisfied. You're never full. You know that things are scarce. And now we're going to start this downward spiral. You're having to eat food that is not sufficient. Why? Because the best food has to go to planting for next season. And things become even more scarce and it gets harder. And so you're not able to eat the best grains. You're having to scrounge now. And now the climate of the culture is one of, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You're not ever being satisfied. He continues in verse 6. He says, you drink, but you never have your fill. Eh, it's not the best translation. I think early translators of the Bible kind of freaked out on this one. It says, you drink, but you never get drunk. To which you want to go, yeah, but wait, I, no, that's actually a good thing. Mm-mm. You drink, but you never get shakar in Hebrew. God's saying, look, I know it's hard, and you're trying to escape with wine, but it's not working, is it? You're trying to inebriate yourself. You're trying to inoculate to numb your frustration, but even that's not working. You know why? Because it's August 29th, 520 B.C., and you're drinking an early August 27th, 520 B.C. that's been watered down. It's so bad. It was just made two days ago, and it's not doing anything. You can't even escape your pain, although I know that you're trying. He moves on. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. It's been less than 20 years, and all of their clothes, all of their shoes is wearing out, which reminds me of the children of Israel in the Exodus in the wilderness for 40 years, walking, and their clothes and their shoes never wore out because God was with them. But here already, their garments are wearing out. They can't even protect themselves from the chill. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute, it's August 29th, 
520 BC, it's probably pretty warm during the day, but at night in the Middle East, it gets cold, and they know that fall and winter are coming. I know it's hard for us to appreciate, because right now in East Texas, it's just slightly warmer than the surface of the sun. I know that. But in those days, and in that time, it would be very cold at night, and their best attempts to cover themselves are insufficient. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Apparently now inflation has hit. Scarcity is the norm and things are worse and people simply can't make enough to pay for what they need. Whatever they try to save, it just goes right out the back door. Now this is really fascinating because I want to reiterate when this is. It's August 29th, 520 BC. It's a new moon. It's one of the seven festivals of Israel. They're all gathered together. Do you know what they did when they came into Jerusalem for these festal gatherings? They sang the Psalms of Ascent. Oh, I love these Psalms. I love to preach these Psalms. One of my favorite, perhaps, is Psalm 127. Here, I'll read it for you. It goes like this, just the first two verses. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Quite literally, the people of Israel who have come back from exile would have sang that song that very morning as they went up the hill. They had just heard it ringing in their own ears. And then the prophet shows up and says, yeah, you're guilty. David wrote that for us, the inspired hymn book of our nation 500 years ago. You just sang it, but it didn't ring true. We are guilty of singing against ourselves here. That's why we always want to be really careful when we have worship. Are we singing things that we don't believe? We want to watch that very carefully. They should have known better. I should know better. By the way, I just want to say again, the scenario that Haggai is addressing is a really bad scenario. Hyperinflation, futility, and frustration. And yet, please notice the mercy that God is showing. He allows them to still exist in the land and to have them there despite all of their indifference toward him and to be able to hear a word directly from him. That's a grace. He tolerates and he is patient. Now, it's been said that after Israel returns from exile in Babylon, that they never again practiced idolatry, which is absolutely not true. They just found more socially acceptable ways to do it. Oh yeah, previously they were grafting in worship of Baals and of Marduk and Chemosh, the gods of the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. But after they came back from Babylon, they never did that again. That's true. They modernized. They made their own comfort and their own pleasure and their national identity their idol. Just going to let that fill the room for a moment. They made their own convenience, their own comfort, their own pleasure, and their national identity, they made that their idol, which is why they're already in trouble again. God says, no, I can't tolerate I can't allow this indifference. And so he says in verse 7 again, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about why you're doing what you're doing. You're saying, oh, no, 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 we love God. We'll get to that one day, but not yet. Not yet. And God's saying, you don't understand. It's time. So in verse 8, the central verse of this passage, I love this verse, asterisk this verse in your Bibles. Go up to the hills, 
and bring wood and build the house. Are you kidding me? Let me just say for the record, if I'm God, this is not what I say. I go, you, go get the paneling out of your house and bring it to the temple. I know where you've got it. It was 17 pallets. I know. Go get it. Rip it out. Sorry. That's what I would say. Not God. He's gracious. He is going to settle for less quality paneling. This first batch was specifically cut for the temple. Came from Lebanon. Now he says just go to the Judean hills, the rough, scrubby little trees that are around Jerusalem. Go and cut and bring wood and bring it. Because I don't care about the quality and the grain of the wood. I care about your hearts. Go get it. It's going to interrupt your schedule. It's going to cause you to be invested in time and energy and relationship. But go and do this. Here's why. Verse 8. Go to the hills, not Lebanon, around here, and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. How gracious. This is so important. This is why this matters. So that he may take pleasure in it and so that he may be glorified so that God's joy and God's delight will be influenced so that he will be rightly recognized as the weighty and the famous one. This is why I wanted to preach this passage in the middle of the summer because I can tell you that I am vastly on a day-by-day basis more interested in my own pleasure and on being the weighty one in my universe. But right here in this text, this ancient obscure minor prophet text, I see clearly that this error in my thinking, in my feeling, in my action matters immensely to my God. And I want to change. I do. I don't know every single person in this room, but I suspect strongly that if I have that burden that I need to change, I need to be different, then there is a high degree of likelihood that it's probably true of all of us. This is why we come to God's word, that we see it as a mirror and we get exposed to the things that are off in our being. Verse 9, he continues, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Yahweh of armies, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It's so very tragic, this verse, but it's not pathetic. God's saying, look, can't you see that your life is not working? Your life is frustrating. And the reason for it is that you have placed yourself at the center. And you are simply way too small and dangerously unqualified for that position. God says, listen, I understand. You want to make much of yourself. But when we have that attitude, we're actually working against God. And that's a grace because he could simply just turn us over to ourselves and let us have it our way. But... He loves us. See, what Haggai is telling the people is that the condition of the temple was indicative of their regard for God. The condition of the temple was an indicator of their regard, their respect, their reverence for their God. It gets more serious. Verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I want you to understand the shocking reality of what's happened. Simply because these people wrongly failed to recognize their God, there is now a schism and a halt in the natural created way of things. Precipitation is now stopped. 
The ground is no longer fertile and producing. Why? Because the sin of man failing to recognize God impacts the whole of creation. We probably don't think of it that way. We just think, oop, I broke a rule. I need to say I'm sorry and so I can get my toys back. But our Bible is telling us over and overly that sin is a really big deal. It has cosmic implications that affect the whole of creation. Verse 11. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain. So I'm calling for more scarcity in water and on food. That's pretty serious. The new wine and the oil, all of your ways to salve, all of your ways to inebriate. There's going to be less of that on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Wow. The rest of the created order, including all the animal kingdom, suffers consequence because of the sin of mankind. In other words, the well-being and peace or shalom of all creation depends on the relationship between God and man and man and man. Well, I have very good news because there is a response. We'll just very quickly look at verse 12 and see what happens. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, said, Come on, man, we're trying, but things are hard. I'm in season three on Netflix. I'm kind of busy. No, no, th- no. Thanks be to God they didn't say that because it would have not gone well for them. No, this is what it says. With all the remnant of the people, obey the voice of the Yahweh Almighty. See, it's never, ever, ever been a bad idea to do that. When God speaks, always the right approach is to obey the Lord your God. And interestingly, the words of Haggai the prophet. Interesting. Haggai's words are those of God. I hope, I pray, we're committed to at Bethel. Anytime anybody ever preaches from this platform, it'll always be the words of God, which is why I'm profoundly intimidated in this role. I always pray, God, would you remove all and any error from what I have said that is not what you think? Because this is what God is saying, and I want to be super careful to get it right. Verse 12. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. When God speaks and people hear, they fear the Lord. I encourage you to read the rest of the book of Haggai. It's only another chapter and a half. You'll see that they get to work rebuilding the temple. Oh, they have some some struggles, but I want you to read it. All of that to remind us that it's time. Now, now let 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 me say something here. Some of you have sat there patiently throughout this entire sermon trying not to squirm because you've heard passages like this preached before. And now now you're waiting for the punchline that we're about to ask you for a whole bunch of money so we can make our building bigger and we're going to make you feel guilty about it until we do. Well, guess what? This ain't that. That's why I'm preaching Haggai in the middle of the summer. We have no capital campaign. But I went back and researched and looked. I can't find anybody that I know anywhere that has ever preached the book of Haggai apart from a capital campaign. And I think that's great error. It's great error because this is not what this is about at all. Yes, of course, we always want to invite you to support the church financially through giving. Giving is an act of worship always, but that's not what this is about. This is why I'm preaching Haggai 1 in the middle of the summer. Application point number one. We are the temple of God. I hear this all the time. 
I looked at so many different manuscripts of sermons, people saying, hey, this is, this is the temple. You've got to give to the temple. We've got to make the temple better. You've got that nice dishwasher. Well, where's the dishwasher in this building? Don't you love Jesus? It's not at all what this passage is about. I'm afraid poor old Haggai never gets preached unless it is a capital campaign. So Haggai, if you're listening, that's another conversation. I have no idea. I want to preach his word. We are the temple. I mean, we are not Israel, and we don't have an actual temple. We, the people of the church, are the temple of God. Where God resides in this age, the people of God are the showplace of His glory, not some edifice or structure. Praise God, because we have this seemingly unattractive beige box. This is not really showing the glory of God. But you know what? This is... If I somehow had the capacity to pull back the veil and see the glory of the redeemed, those who are the dwelling places of the Shekinah glory of God himself, all the rest of us would want to fall down and worship. Because in this age, God dwells in and with his people, which means the space between your shoulders is holy ground, which means, shh, God is here. We are the temple of God. Listen to how the New Testament describes the temple of God in this age. It's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This is you, singular. You, you are the dwelling of God most high in this age. He could not possibly be closer. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And just in case that's not poignant enough, that's singular, now he's going to give it to us a different way, that it's plural, it's us. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. <laughs> that's funny. Look at you people. If you're God, are you living here? No way. Paul's a Jew. The Jew of Jews was raised, taught, learned at the temple. And now he's, well, now he's in Corinth. Ugh. Not enough penicillin in Europe would have cured the stuff going on in Corinth. And Paul calls them the temple of God most high. There's hope for us. Paul must have been amazed at the grace and the glory and the goodness of God to make the people of Corinth his dwelling he quotes, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I could go on with passage after passage. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 4. The people of God in this age are the dwelling of God in this age. This is the demonstration and the showplace of the glory of God. It's people. It is not about a building. But notice, God cares immensely and intensely about his house, about his temple. Which leads me to our second point. The people of the church must be our priority. I know, that means others. It means one another. And we're the worst. Oh my gosh, we're the absolute worst. You don't believe me? Hang out downstairs for a while. You'll be like, I kind of hate people. I think I'm moving to France. Guess what? They're worse. <laughs> I know, but, but this is how God's plan is. It means one another. It's so counterculture. 
And yet it is precisely what the world outside is so desperate for, so deeply desperate for someone else to know me and to love me and accept me despite all of the reasons not to. This is why social media has become what it is. It's an attempt on my part to contrive, manufacture, and control other people's acceptance of me. Because I desperately, desperately need that and I want that. But it's not real. The people of God must be for the people of God. That must be our concern. That does not mean that we shun those outside these walls or outside the church. Oh, far from it. All people matter to God and therefore they matter to us. And so we love one another so well that what we have in authentic community is so completely compelling and contagious that the world outside goes, hmm, tell me about the answer for the hope that you have. And we say, oh God, would you do for them what you have done for us? And may we, as our gathering together, be the demonstration of your redemptive glory. Of course we consider them out there. Now you're going to hear more about this for the next four Sundays in August. We're going to be very persistent, very specific, and helping these stones fit together. It's not enough to show up at this place, or any church for that matter, and merely air quotes coming, be prepared, get fed. You'll not find that anywhere in scripture. It's good to get fed. Never enough, never sufficient. This must be a place where we know and we are known by one another. I can't tell you how often I hear it. Someone has left this church or has left another church to come here. How come? Well, I really wasn't happy with how he parsed that Greek verb. Never. Well, you know, when, when he got to the bridge of that song, he held it a little bit too long. Never. It's, I didn't know anybody. I got sick. I was gone for three weeks. Nobody called. I'm done. People are desperately needing connectivity. And you know what? It's near and dear to the heart of God. So, third point. God's pleasure is our purpose. God's pleasure is is our purpose. What if, I asked at the beginning, what if we could directly impact and influence his joy, his delight, his pleasure? Apparently, we can. When we diligently commit to build one another up. The people of Haggai's day for almost 20 years had gotten used to the wreckage. They walked around the pile of stones and they said, well, this is just normal. This is just how it is. This is how it's going to be. But it's not normal for a church to be broken internally or even externally in the community. It's not normal. It's not okay. We have to be willing to see the wreckage and understand that there are hurting, broken relationships in families or across families. We have to be willing to see the wreckage. Wreckage in the temple of God is not normal. It is not acceptable. So apparently God cares immensely about all of these living stones fitting together properly. Even though everyone is cut to a different size and shape, they fit together with God's spirit as the mortar between them. And then and only then are they sufficient to hold and carry the weight. But when they do, God is glorified and, that, and he takes great delight in people taking the time and the energy to invest in others so that the house is built up. God's given us the resources we need for one another, but our depravity makes us want to spend it all on ourselves. Ooh, I have this extra time. I think I'll just sit and watch this all by myself for the next 19 hours. Well, that was good. That's really good. I have a couple of cardiologists here, and I'm sure they'll tell you that it's really good for you to do that. 
or not. But I also have God's word here. And what he is vastly interested in is people who are intentionally pouring into the lives of others. See, Jesus rescued us from our tendency to depravity. The book of Philippians says he gives us a new will and a new want to act. That we are saved to do the good works he created in advance for us to do. What are those things? It's to build and bless and bolster one another. Jesus, the very son of God, had his own temple torn down in three days, but after three days, he restored it and invites us to be the temple of God in this age. We are the recipients of his Shekinah glory. He literally could not be closer to us in this age. Last week we talked about we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. You might think of it as spiritual paneling. Let us not be found as wasting that on ourselves. Let's commit to sharing that with the house, with one another. I'm not asking you to contribute to a building campaign. I'm telling you that if we get this right in Scripture, that won't be our problem. We'll have a whole host of other challenges, and that'll be glorious. Maybe one day, maybe one day. No. It's time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for your people. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. They will step out of death and into life and miraculously you will transform them from an enemy to a son or daughter. Would you give them the courage to speak with someone they know and love and trust about that? For the rest of us, Father, would you wake us up through the preaching of Haggai that we are to be diligently driven to seek your pleasure, to seek your joy, your delight. Father, we ask for wisdom in the coming weeks as we roll out opportunities for these, your people, to increasingly know one another and be known by one another. We do that, Father, for your glory, for your sake, because you're worth it. I pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.